Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, February 1st, 2015. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And can you believe it's already February? What happened? (laughs) Time just goes flying by as we get older, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, we just had Christmas and New Year's, and now it's almost your birthday. my God. (laughs) The other thing (laughs) I was noticing the other day is that all the trees are starting to come into bloom, I guess to do with our global warming or something. Well, you know, we had a day here in San Francisco yesterday that was 75 degrees. I went out to ride my bike in the park, and I had ta- I had brought all my things that I normally bring for wintertime, and I was in a T-shirt, and I was sweating. It was great. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo, and thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network. All of our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour, and we've got a really good show for you today that's going to include... Who benefits from the measles vaccine? And the shocking cost of health insurance paperwork. And how does journaling help to improve your health? Why do people with the same level of hypertension need different treatment? Boy, that's so overdue, it's crazy. And lastly, what does depression have to do with inflammation? Are you worried about the current so-called measles outbreak? And could blaming it on the non-vaccinated possibly be a marketing strategy to sell more measles vaccines. Well, you certainly can't trust the people who are promoting it. <laughs> you know, when you, if you've been to the well as many times as we have th- throughout our medical history, and you've been so disappointed in, in the FDA and the CDC and the World Health Organization because they have a reputation when you study carefully that's very dicey. Well, anti-vaccination is a trigger word with very negative connotations. Right. All of a sudden, you become the bad guy, right? (laughs) Yep. And there are many assumptions without scientific backup concerning the value of vaccines, which will surprise a lot of people. Right. And lots of promotion to get them or be shamed. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of money in it. I mean, look at the money in vaccines. You're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the sale of vaccines. So Especially there's a lot if you get everybody panicked. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing that happens with, with uh, the swine flu vaccine and that big fiasco. And everybody's still buying in, into it today. And I invite you all to read my paper, The Infection Deception. Go to drsabuto.com and put the infection deception uh, in the search box, and up will come this paper that was published in the Townsend Lettered that will reveal the terrible conclusions that the CDC came to and how everybody bought into it. So it's. Uh, I think it's everybody's responsibility to read that. Well, it's the doctor's responsibility to hear both sides of the stories. Awesome. You know, it's not like we're anti vaccine, I'm pro vaccine. I think it's a great thing if you have data that shows it's really something to do. But if you don't have the data, don't just shove 70 vaccines down the throats of every kid in the first 18 years or of in, their life. Or into their bloodstreams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many vaccines do they get in the first year of their life? 26 doses. God, I mean, it's full of what? And these babies already have 200 different chemicals in their umbilical cord to start out. And then start you're going to put more chemicals in there because these vaccines don't just have the the attenuated virus, virus or, or what have you. It, it's full of mercury and, and aluminum and, and formaldehyde and, and antibiotics. And I mean, your common sense chemicals. would tell you. And where the hell is the data? Who has the data that's solid that shows these things really work? You assume because you get antibody levels that that's going to protect you and be infallible. And it turns out you can't bank on that. 
Because a lot of immunizations don't work even when you have an antibody titer. Well, because of the news media's storyline promotions for the vaccines, mm-hmm. you might be surprised to learn that the measles vaccines are not really providing immunity in the first place because the measles are showing up in heavily vaccinated areas. Isn't that something? I mean, you would think that with all the press that's going on, that would be some bit of data that they back this up on rather than the CDC saying it's something to worry about and we should freak out. Just like we were supposed to freak out when the swine flu was here and it turned out to be a non-event. We we're tracking a cold around the world. Well, this is a really touchy uh, subject. Mm-hmm because a lot of people get very emotional about it, but non-evidence-based faith in the infallibility of vaccines is what's been going on. Well, and vaccine awareness is labeled anti-vaccine. Well, it's so labeled it's, anti-American. I mean, try to go to your pediatrician and say, I don't want to have immunizations, and most pediatricians will say, then I don't want to take care of you. And it's sort of like, what? Well, don't be a baby. I mean, let's work with people... At where the rubber meets the road, where they are, and try and work with them. And if you're so really determined that vaccines are important, then do some research and show them. In fact, do some research to show yourself that the position you're taking is right. And start out by reading the package insert. That would be a big step forward. You know, remember the story about that woman that took her baby to the, to the pediatrician and she said she wanted to make sure that there wasn't any thimerosal in it? Oh, yeah. And the doctor said, oh, no, there isn't. And she said, well, Can I'd like to just look at the insert. And she looked at the insert and it was right there in the insert and he almost fell over because yeah. he d- just thought that they didn't do it anymore. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff that gets in, that gets put in people's brainwashing techniques that that make you think things like that. And in medical school, a lot of the information you get is promoted by who? It's by the pharmaceutical companies that make these products. And there's a conflict of interest that's huge because those institutions depend on that income to run their programs. Well, people need to be aware that there have been no long-term clinical studies on the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated or studies done on giving multiple vaccines. Right. I mean, when you're given five or six vaccines at once, which we do to kids now, uh, like 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 we do today in this country, uh, there's an incredible amount of mercury and aluminum in them that, that it is enough that you, you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, common sense would say, why would you give kids all that when... The government even has done studies in this and says it's too much. It's and way too much. Especially when there's been a link to autism and SIDS and ADHD and learning right. disabilities and allergies and neurological damage and autoimmune disease and eczema and so on sure. and so forth. Yeah. Talk about those studies in Italy with oh, the autism. Yeah, those are recent too. You know, in September of 2014, an Italian court came up and awarded a family for a boy who was had, they determined, vaccine-induced autism. And, of course, when they went, the family went ahead and took it to the board, the Ministry of Health in Italy, they said, oh, no, that's not a problem. But in Italy, you can go ahead and take it to a general jurisdiction court, where which you can't in this country, by the way, and it was overturned. And they concluded that that was a problem. Then there was a second case that did the same thing, and the, and the court came to the same Conclusion, and they were talking about things like uh, the vaccine that has it's called Infanrix Hexa, and it has a whole bunch of uh, of diseases, live viruses there, and killed viruses as polio, diphtheria, tetanus, hepatitis B, pertussis, and haemophilus, and the amount of of 
of poison that's in there because of the thimerosal and the uh, aluminum is huge. And, and, and the government even says it's far more than we should be giving the but kids. there was another one on the measles, mumps, rubella too. That's right. That was the second one that said the same things. And that was all over the Italian press. And we didn't hear anything about it in the United States. Not one thing in the United States press. Does it make you think that there's an organized system where some things hit the media and some don't for reasons that are because of conflicts of interest. I mean, who is inclined to own both Big Pharma and the news industry? (laughs) Those are the people that are in collusion, that are giving only the kind of information that they want to the American public. And I want to throw out another interesting statistic. There was a study done in the year 2000 that showed that showed 90% of the decline in infectious disease mortality in US children was before 1940 when few vaccines or antibiotics were even available. Yeah, right. Those are the kinds of things that we should be looking at as well. You know, it's easy to look at a single perspective. We do that all the time. And then we build a case to support it. But our obligation is to look at the other side of the story as well. Yeah, You've so like, are, is there a difference in getting vaccines in the U.S. and in third world countries? Absolutely. And if you mix up those criteria for immunization, you'll get the wrong answers. In third world countries, there's no question that the measles immunization is a very good thing. When you look back to 1980, there were about two and a half million deaths every year globally. Today, in the, or in the year 2013, there were less than 150,000. Now, that's a huge change. And you can attribute that mostly to the vaccine, probably. But when you're looking at, the, at measles epidemic and you've got these kinds of numbers, you've got to look and see what are the reasons why these kids are getting uh, measles in such large numbers and why are they having so many complications, including death. And a lot of that is about living conditions, about malnutrition. They're so low in vitamin A that if you give these kids vitamin A uh, when they get the measles, what will happen is about the normal death rate of 50% goes way down. So there are simple things that you can do. Now, I agree with the World Health Organization in giving immunizations to third world countries. And we should immunize them as much as we can because it costs about a dollar to do that. And we should also be giving them vitamin A and probably some vitamin D. And we should do what we can about nutrition, but that's a much bigger story. So we may not be able to get that all accomplished, but it's a great start. And we need to clean up their environment and and make sure that their water is clean and sure. You know, they're getting rid of waste properly and washing their hands, covering their mouth, all the things that, that most need, of us We need know to build about. their immune defenses up. In this country, that's not the same thing. What we need to be concerned in this country, because measles is a far less serious illness here, you don't see uh, a whole lot of deaths. You don't see 5 or 10 or 15% of people getting measles in this country dying. When we were young, we all got the measles. And I we never survived. Heard, I never heard of anybody that got deathly ill from it. Well, I mean, it, it's not a fun disease. I mean, the symptoms that you get there can be a, a, an issue that make you pretty sick. And well, you are, get a rash and a high fever, and you get other symptoms that are similar to like, like a, to it's like like a, a severe cold. Like okay. a bad cold. It, it lasts a couple of weeks. And uh, it's you get good. little patches inside your mouth, I think. Well, too. a lot of things you, you can you can see, but the the most serious complications in third world countries are blindness, where it was the leading cause of death. But that's because they don't have enough vitamin A, exactly. Right? And encephalitis, and then dehydration because of the diarrhea and infections that are secondary infections like ear infections and pneumonia. 
Uh, and again, it's because of the, the insufficient level of vitamin A plus a weakened immune system. Okay, now there are a lot of people that talk about the term herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what herd or community immunity means. Okay. What is that? Well, they, what they say is that if, if enough people are immunized in a community, then the chances of the disease becoming an epidemic go way down. Well, that's kind of like common sense. You'd expect some of that. Because if everybody is resistant to the illness, let's say everybody had the measles. Okay, everybody in the community had the measles. If the measles virus came around, you have lifelong immunity. When Mm -hmm. you get the infection, it wouldn't be an issue. But if you're somebody who didn't get the measles and didn't get a vaccine, what they're saying then is that the risk of that illness spreading depends on the percentage of people who aren't protected, either because they didn't have measles or because they didn't get the vaccine. So that's what herd immunity is all about. And, and, and maybe there's a lot to it, but I think we, don't, we can't really believe in that because we know that some communities where 99% of the people were uh, immunized uh, with the measles vaccine. Still got it. There were still <laughs> epidemics. So, so that does, so this shows a, it doesn't provide a lot of immunity. Well, it doesn't guarantee what people are saying. Well, herd immunity is a big deal. I mean, so I think it's better to, to be... Uh, resistant to those illnesses, but you can't count on that. Okay, can you get a get a disease from somebody that's been freshly uh, vaccinated? Well, if they've been immunized with a live virus, like the nasal flu thing, or if you or the measles, or measles vaccine, or the chicken pox. Okay, if you get those vaccines, yes, but you're talking about a virus that's been weakened. It's called an attenuated viral vaccine. And that means that the virus that is actually put into the vaccine may be alive, but it's so weak it doesn't cause an illness in most people. Now, if you're severely immunocompromised, say you have AIDS or cancer or some other illness where your immunity is pretty is diminished, then it may cause some symptoms. But in general, that's not much of a concern. Well, would it be a concern if a mother had a, had an infant? With her friend who also had another infant and one had been vaccinated and one hadn't, could the one that had not been vaccinated catch the infection The infection from the one that was vaccinated? Yes. Okay. What they would get is exposure to the attenuated virus that wouldn't be much of a deal. So maybe that's a better way to get vaccinated. Well, I mean, isn't that the <laughs> Hang way? Hang out with somebody that's had it. Well, well, isn't that how we've been immunized throughout all of history? You're around somebody who has the measles and you get the measles and then you have lifelong immunity. Or you're around somebody who has whooping cough or some other uh, viral infection or bacterial infection. It leads to lifelong immunity. Yes, those are the best ways to get, quotes, vaccinated naturally that you could. And that's what we should be doing. So what does somebody do if they get the measles? I mean, are there vitamins that they should take or what well, should they I, I do? I think so. I think taking vitamin A is a must. I, taking some vitamin D makes a lot of sense. I'd give a big slug of vitamin D. What about C? Well, yeah, you could. Yes, of course. And then hopefully they've had uh, a good diet and a good lifestyle before that so that they are maybe have a stronger immune system. I mean, nearly everybody who gets these illnesses recovers from them. And then they have, li- li- they have lifelong immunity to it. It's the people in third world countries. We're 10% of them that, that are, are getting the disease, at least back in the 1980s, were dying from measles. So, yeah, it depends on who you are, where you live, what your immune system is like, whether or not you're malnourished. 
and what kind of health care you can get as, as a support. Okay, so after listening to this show and doing your homework and so forth on vaccinations and you make a decision mm-hmm. uh, one way or another, you need to be aware that when you take your child to the pediatrician, many of them are going to s- severely pressure you to... Uh, Take all vaccinate your children, although people need to be aware that they're not required because a lot of times you're made to feel that they are from the schools and from the pediatricians. Well, that's right. And it's difficult to say no. So what you have to do is do your homework and be prepared if you want to say no, because that's your right. Well, you would like to have solid information, okay, that you can trust. I hope you can trust what we're doing. If you go to your pediatrician, if your pediatrician has done the homework and is not like the one that read the insert and said, oh, my God, there's thimerosal in it and I didn't know. I mean, this is what you run up against. You're, gonna, you're in a tough spot no matter what. Your doctor's supposed to know things like this, but they don't because it's, it, I can tell you it takes an enormous effort of research to study these things because you just can't find the data that you want that tells a story without conflicts of interest. Well, like I said at the top of the show, it's non-evidence-based faith in the infallibility of vaccines. That's really right. That's right. And that's instilled in us by the CDC and by the FDA and organizations that have something to gain from the vaccines being out there. Even the World Health Organization has so many conflicts of interest that you can't get accurate information that you can trust. And they want to spread panic. It's to their benefit to sell the vaccines. Well, that's right. And and look who's to pay for these vaccines, our, our little children. Well, that's right. And here we're finding out that a lot of them don't even create immunity anyway. Well... That kind of summarizes it. I wish we could give you better answer than that because now you're even in a tougher spot between a rock and a hard place because we've given you our perspective on it. But at least we've researched it and have made a serious effort to give you both sides of the story. And that's what you want when you're trying to figure out what to do where the rubber meets the road. Now, you've been listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuda here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on putting the fear of communicable diseases in perspective. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the shocking cost of health insurance paperwork. Panic and anger are spreading about the fear of communicable diseases and measles and many other vaccines. So let's put some things into perspective here. First of all, sugar leads to millions of deaths per year. Chickenpox kills about 100 a year. And if those who died of chickenpox didn't eat so much sugar, maybe they wouldn't have died in the first place. (laughs) Something to think about. Yes. Well, hepatitis B is a virus that can be contracted by drug users and sexual contact. So why are we injecting this vaccine into newborns? (laughs) Toxic laundry detergent, fabric softeners, and dryer sheets are toxic and can be carcinogenic and kill more people than the mumps. The chemicals and heavy metals contaminated in our environment are known to cause autism and heart disease and cancer and autoimmune disease and more, leading to tens of millions of deaths per year. And the measles deaths are a small fraction compared to pollution, so we need to clean up our environment. Want to prevent Infectious diseases, breastfeeding, like you said earlier, protects our children from many infectious diseases. What are the ingredients in vaccines? 
Well, did your doctor tell you that they contained some of the things we talked about earlier, like the aluminum and the mercury and the formaldehyde? Well, there's also aborted fetal tissue and antibiotics and other chemicals. And like I said also, that newborns already have 200 chemicals in their cord blood before these injections in the first place. Now, kids being sedentary, watching television, playing video games, on the internet, addicted to their cell phones, leads to electromagnetic radiation and lack of exercise, which itself kills millions more than polio. Pharmaceutical companies brainwash us to believe that drugs are the cure-all. Correctly prescribed drugs kill thousands every year. More people die from drugs than most illnesses. That could probably include vaccine. (laughs) What does? That's right. Ask your doctor questions. Pay attention to what you feed your children. Clean up your lifestyle and your environment and get the chemicals out. And remember that a healthy lifestyle includes a meaningful purpose in life and a positive attitude. Amen. Good advice. You know, our nation's medical system has become very complex with so much billing paperwork and insurance red tape. It cost the United States economy about $471 billion in 2012. It drives doctors crazy, and a lot of doctors are quitting their practices because of this. And the inefficiencies of the multi-payer competitive way of financing care was responsible for most of the waste. Researchers also say that if we used a single-payer system of financing health care similar to Canada in our Medicare program, we could save $375 billion a year. That's a staggering amount of money. Just staggering. Well, insurance billings become a game designed to enhance the bottom line. So why does a cardiac echo cost $4,000 in the hospital and $400 in the doctor's office? <laughs> right. And I noticed when you were in the hospital that Band-Aids cost $5 in the hospital. <laughs> right. They're about 10 cents otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened to Dr. Welby and Dr. Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare? That's right. I mean, <laughs> medical care is no longer a service. It's become a business about money. What happened? Yeah, well, you're so right. I mean, there have been major changes in the whole healthcare system over the past, I'd say, starting in about the 1980s, something like that. We started to get into a situation where doctors really didn't want to be involved with the cost of healthcare. And at that time, I can remember that I was always going to give the patients what I thought was the best care that they could have, and I didn't care about the cost. But then I didn't realize how costs are inflated by the pharmaceutical industry so they can make a whole lot of money. And if so they got a monopoly doing, on something... So you're doing a disservice. <laughs> yeah, you're basically doing a disservice. We needed to fix the system there. But basically what happened was doctors punted. They said, you insurance guys and financiers can worry about the cost of health care. We're going to practice medicine. In the meantime, what happened is we got into all this HMO and hospital loan uh, doctors who now have become slaves, right? And and they have a boss to tell them what to do. And they're all retiring early. A lot of them are retiring early because they can't stand it. They have to do what they're allowed to do rather than what in their hearts they think would be the best way to deal with things a lot of the time. Well, I think billing's become an art as well as a science. It's a game in a lot of ways. I mean, the whole business is what? It's to increase sales and increase income. I mean, that's what billing is is all about because if you make it difficult to get reimbursement, uh, then you're going to have more money because people will give up. And, of course, you want to sell as many policies as you can because that means you're bringing more money in. So the payback is is the problem. The insurance companies want to pay back as little as possible to enhance the bottom line. Well, you know, too, hospitals uh, discount Medicare 
by 90%, and they charge the patients the full amount. So what that means is if you have Medicare insurance, you may have a bill for $100,000 when you're finished with a, with a hospital uh, admission, and they may Medicare may reimburse the hospital 10000 or 12000 or 15000 The rest is written off because it's a game. What do you mean written off? It means that they aren't going to get paid, and they just accept that. accept that as their full payment, and that's the end of it. And, and that's a, a nice thing for Medicare, but it leads the hospitals to, to charge, to overinflate their bills by as much as they can. For everybody else. That's that why a Band-Aid costs five bucks, okay? Or their cardiac echo is $4,000, which is insanity. So when you see things like that happening, you know that the poor patient who comes in that doesn't have insurance is going to get billed the full amount. And if you don't negotiate with the hospital billing system... And they're probably the ones that need it the, the, the discount the most. They do. That's absolutely correct. So now that we have at least more insurance for more people through Obamacare, which I don't think is a great system, by the way, but is a system that at least includes more people and also keeps insurance companies from withholding insurance from you or charging exorbitant prices because you have some terrible disease. So this is a real issue about how insurance companies work, and it's, and it's, it's a bad idea for doctors as well, and it just it, like it is for patients. So if the insurance often won't cover certain services and the patient has to pay, then the insurance companies make money and the patient just loses out. Well, the insurance company doesn't have to spend money that they might have, also, that they might have had to pay, and the patient has to pay those bills. So when we're looking at the amount of money that's wasted, they say $375 billion is wasted. There's a total of $471 billion that's spent on what? Medical billing paperwork and insurance-related red tape. It's a $471 billion in the year 2012, 80% of which they say is waste. And that's where they come up with the $375 billion number that's wasted. Well, isn't now, a lot of the, the point of the red tape to reduce the reimbursement to the patient or to, or to the doctor? Well, they want course. to just run you around in so many circles so that you, that give you just give up. Yes. But if we had that $375 billion to spend, guess what? We could, we could pay for the insurance for all those uninsured people in the U.S. just by shifting it over. And that's why we needed something like Medicare for everybody, which means universal health care. So if you have the universal health care, you don't have to do the paperwork. Not as much. I mean, the the insurance is paid for by who? The government. The government's going to have one standard way they do it. And they're going to try and be as fair as they can, like they do in Canada and every other industrialized country in the world. They're going to do the same thing. So... What we have is the worst healthcare system that you could have from the point of view of having healthcare available to people and having it be affordable and having it be more of a service because we, we spend at least $9,000 per person per year. No other country comes close. The, and we're ranked 37th in the world in overall quality of care. And what do we get for it? What we're getting is a lot less because what we're doing is sustaining a business. And, it's not personal. That's the shame. Well, it's not personal. It's also very expensive. So what we need to do is find a way to change that. And this would be one way we could, but I see no effort for that to actually happen. And so here we are. That's the problem. 
It's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio, and we'll be talking about how journaling can actually improve your health. The prescriptions for health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. Do you journal? Sometimes. Well, have you ever thought about the benefits of journaling? Absolutely. Well, an interesting study on expressive writing about yourself and personal experiences shows that it can improve mood disorders, reduce cancer symptoms, improve health after a heart attack, boost memory, and decrease doctor visits. So I think we ought to start out by talking about how it helps your patients who qualify for a healing circle to write autobiographies in preparation for those. Okay, let's define a healing circle. First, what we do is we look at people who have complicated health issues and are not thriving. And we try to find ways to help them to get back on track. So what we'll do is we'll have them write an autobiography of their physical health from birth to now, their emotional health from birth to now in a second section, and their spiritual health from birth to now in a third. So because my practice is like it is, which is taking on mostly people who have had complicated problems, and they've seen 10, 15, 20, 30 healthcare practitioners, a lot of them I asked to go ahead and write this autobiography. And they that must ever, take them a long time. It does. It takes them anywhere from a week to six months. And some people, they start and they never finish because it gets too traumatic for them. Because what they're doing is reviewing all the issues that have happened physically and psycho-spiritually in their life that have led them to be exactly where they are today, not thriving. So I will look at that autobiography, and they range from anywhere from five pages that are single-space typewritten to about 100 pages, depending on who the person is and how much they want to reveal. I noticed the other day you had a binder yeah, I know. from a patient, and it was full. Yeah, well, That was more than 100 pages. Oh, it was a, an inch and a half thick with stuff that she wrote. <laughs> and I read that on my own time because I feel, and, and that was a very interesting story. I mean, it's, some people can really write very well. And it was like, you should write a book. This, I mean, this was a fascinating story. So we then get together with several practitioners uh, and we meet with the, with the patient for two hours, uh, usually on a Friday afternoon. And then we just do two things. We listen to what the person is saying and we care as much as we can about them so that we actually feel like we're walking in their shoes. So does this autobiography that they write, is this to help you or is this to help the patient? It helps both of us. If we don't understand the patient because we don't know their story, how can we start making suggestions of things that they might consider changing? And if we do know them, then we can also get an idea of, of what's going on in their life. And they can too. And when they write their story... There's a truth that comes out of it that's very unique because they begin to see what's, what happened to them and a lot of the time why they went down the path that they did. And so often people have dysfunctional families. In fact, I haven't met one yet that doesn't have some element of dysfunctionality in it. 
And then we'd go ahead and sit with them and help them to see what they've experienced as they have learned what they have when they read their own autobiography. You know, it's interesting, this study that we're, you know, got us talking about this topic in the mm-hmm. first place. Right. Um, we're showing that when people write like this, it can affect their whole life course. It does. And it can help them to confront the truths in their lives mm-hmm. and to even to shift their priorities and to be more forgiving. Absolutely. It can even affect their grades and their marital happiness, and it can encourage them to be optimistic. It can help them cope. It can help them identify their goals. It's not often that people will do it, take an inventory of their life story and put it in the context of how it's affected them, but also affected, affected everybody else in their, in their family, uh, in their community, and even at a global level. So it's good to have an idea of what's your situation. And then you kind of see why things turned out why they do. And people begin to get an idea of how they might respond in a different way. And they come up on their own with ideas of what could have been different had they responded in a different way. And part of that might be like what you said about forgiving somebody. Forgiveness is an incredibly powerful thing that allows you to get off the hook, so to speak. Meaning that you forgive the person who had limited abilities to deal with things in a way that was appropriate. You don't condone what they did. You never condone something that was done to you. But if you forgive them, then you don't have to be worrying about the effects that that they did because they were incompetent. Then, if you create new boundaries, it insulates you from being hurt again. If you make the same mistake a second time, it's like your fault. But a lot of the time when years go by or decades go by, you can become aware of what some of the things are that happened in life that were done to you, that if you forgive somebody, lets you off the hook and allows you to create new boundaries so that you're protected. You know, this um, study talks like it has such a positive effect to Mm -hmm. do this expressive writing. Right. But I think that I might have a little concern here that Mm -hmm. some people, it might stir things up for them. It would. And make them maybe get more upset. And it's not like being with a counselor that can help them while they're talking about Mm it, you know, because it's, I mean, maybe for a healing circle, because you'll all, you know, kind of help them with that. We'll be very supportive. But if somebody's just doing this expressive writing and it starts stirring up all this, um, Not if, it, doesn't it seem, will. It will. It doesn't seem like it would all be positive. It won't be. You're going to suffer through the things that you can identify, but at least you can identify them. And you can change your perceptions if you identify the obstacles so that you can, you can deal with them in a different way because you see it. So I can it, remember going through some difficult times in my life and I was writing just kind of like to vent. Uh-huh. And then after it was all over and I came across it and started reading, it's like, oh my gosh, why do I want to read this? This is just stirring up those feelings and those emotions again. And I just burned it. That's Well, it may be because you felt helpless about changing things. But if you're in the support... No, by the time when I found it, it was past... I understand that. And so it was that. like I was looking back at it, and I it was like, ooh, yeah, but it wasn't why over. I go back it there? wasn't over. You hadn't forgiven people or who, whoever these people were that did things to you, and that's what needs to happen. So there's a big difference between forgiving and condoning. I mean, it's not right. You don't condone it. But who's suffering? It's you that's suffering. And if you want to continue suffering, don't forgive them. Yeah, well, thank goodness I finally did. 
there you go. And that's the idea of a circle. And by the way, these circles are always free. We don't charge for them, except in certain settings. Because a lot of what happens in a setting like that is that you're with somebody who has a a huge problem, and we try to support that person so that they are convinced that we're doing that because we care for them. And it's not everybody that gets a healing circle because not everybody needs it, but it's one part of the circle that I think is is an important part for most people that we see in our practice. For those that can afford it, it's another story. Well, now we know that the power of writing and its influence on our happiness, you know, that that can, can happen. Well, that's what these studies showed. So I think it's important to try it and to start doing it. You know, I've, I've thought of it before. A lot of times it'll come up for me or I'll have friends that will say, you should write a book, Vicki, or you should write <laughs> about right. this or that or whatever. But I put it off and I don't take the time to do it. But I'm thinking now after, you know, talking about this and, mm-hmm. and reading about this particular uh, article that... Mm-hmm. That maybe maybe that'll get me to do it, you know. Just uh-huh. every day, just write a little bit or something. You could probably person could do it on your on their on your computer. Well, the good thing about it, Vicky, is that when these things happened, and we hold on to them, it's because we were young and we didn't have the tools we needed to resolve the problem. So we we repress it, we stay angry, and we don't resolve what's happening. Well, not too long ago, we were doing this practice together, where every night we would uh-huh. write down. All the things we were grateful for things. that day. Mm-hmm. And boy, that's a real uplifter. Well, that's a good way to go about it. But in this setting, it's it's a little bit different. And it's about uh, forgiving. It's about moving forward. It's about trying to trust that uh, you, can, you can improve. Especially when years have gone by, sometimes decades, and you do have the tools to solve the problem, especially if you've had some uh, psychological support. So that's the beauty of of the healing circles that we do. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's final 2020 tip on simple and profound words for your emotional and spiritual health. Ah, what timing for that. And when we come back, we'll be talking about why people with the same level of hypertension need different treatment, and what does depression have to do with inflammation? Some simple and some profound words for your emotional and spiritual health. The only difference between a good day and a bad day is your attitude. Really? And every day the world will drag you by the hand yelling, this is important and this is important and this is important. You need to worry about this and this and this. And each day it's up to you to yank your hand back, put it on your heart, and say, no, this is what's important. Hmm. Okay. Some people find it hard to say no. These are some simple but profound words of Mother Teresa. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. 
That's right. The only person you should try to be better than is the person you were yesterday. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Holding a grudge is letting somebody live rent-free in your head. That's right. That's why forgiveness is so important. Beware of destination addiction, a preoccupation with the idea that happiness is in the next place, the next job, and with the next partner. Mm. Until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where you are. That's right. And last but not least, how do we change the world? One rack. Random act of kindness at a time. Right on, Vicki. I love it. You know, it appears that the guidelines for hypertension management are being revised to take a person's overall cardiovascular risk into account rather than just looking at the numbers. What a concept. Going to look at the whole person (laughs) and their individual unique self and then decide what to do? Brilliant. What's taking us so long? (laughs) Well, the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions report showed that blood pressure treatment, just focusing on the blood pressure readings, leaves substantial cardiovascular disease risk unaddressed. In other words, doctors need to look, like you said, at the whole person, including their risk factors for heart attack and stroke and their lifestyle before treating hypertension, balancing the side effects of treatment along with the benefits. That's right. I think you need to be more aggressive with some people. And a little less aggressive with others, depending on their situation. And patients are just not just numbers, they're, they're individuals. Right. Would you treat somebody uh, aggressively if they were perfectly well, didn't have any problems with their hearts or lungs, and they were, you were doing tests to assess the reserves there? Would you be more inclined to treat them if they had had a previous heart attack, they smoked, they had type 2 diabetes, they were overweight and were under stress and didn't sleep? It'd be a whole different prediction of how well they would do based on what their story is. Well, can a person have hypertension without it being a risk? No, I don't think so. It's a risk, but it's not nearly as important. Okay, well, now if you say it's not a risk, then... I say it is a risk. It is a risk if you have hypertension. If anybody has hypertension, it's a risk. The question is, how much of a risk is it? How aggressive do you need to be? Overall studies show that if you have a blood pressure of... Less than 160, and you're over the age of 60, that it doesn't really do much to save lives by using uh, treatment. However, what these authors are saying, that we should look at the whole story rather than put them all in one big group. It's sort of like the cholesterol story. Are you going to treat all the people who have high cholesterol with statin drugs or some other kind of way of lowering cholesterol? The answer is no. And we know that people who have a cholesterol that's high with an LDL that's high, uh, who don't have a problem with a previous heart attack or stroke or some other kind of vascular problem, probably going to do worse if you treat them with a statin than if you don't, even though there's controversy about it. But that's where we're going. And with also, hypertension, also where lifestyle comes in. Oh, it's huge. I mean, those are the things that are the most important thing. And some of these lifestyle risk factors would be things like uh, smoking and obesity mm-hmm. and, and, like you said, the high cholesterol mm-hmm. or living a sedentary lifestyle. Sure. And lots of stress and not being able to sleep, an right. unhealthy diet with too much sugar and the wrong fats. Sure. Uh, I guess fast foods with pesticides and additives and preservatives and hormones yeah. and antibiotics, all that. So these would be the first steps that you take to treat people is with lifestyle. If that doesn't work, you're not going to jump right to drugs, although you might with some people who have, have, are, are like a walking time bomb. But for the other people that aren't, 
You try things like Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or stress reduction, doing you know a whole wide range of things that you can do, because those are ways that may help you to lower your blood pressure uh, in ways that are not having to use drugs that have side effects. And then, of course, drugs are something you would consider because if you've got, if you are smoking, you are a type two diabetic, and you're under a lot of stress. You need to do something to bring blood pressure down because in that setting, you're much more likely to get into trouble than a person that's happy-go-lucky, feeling good, weighing what they should, not smoking, no cholesterol problems. Those people are less needing less aggressive treatment because then you want to start looking at the side effects of the drugs, which so are plenty. Can somebody just inherit high blood pressure? Like say somebody's yes. young and they're health, they seem healthy, yes. but their blood pressure is like 160 over... Yeah. Absolutely. A hundred, I mean, some people... Would you treat them? Yeah, I would. would. You, how would you treat them? Well, I would treat them doing the lifestyle first, then non-invasive therapies, and lastly, I would consider drugs. What's non-invasive? Well, like I said, it's Chinese medicine, oh, Ayurveda, okay. Str- okay. and other kinds yeah. of stress reduction, maybe uh, doing some imagery or so what hypnotherapy. Happen, what happens to a person's uh, physiology and anatomy when their blood pressure is high like that? Well, you tend to get blockages in your arteries or you rupture arteries. Because of the irritation of the pressure. and the pressure. Yeah, the pressure does things to the arteries to maybe cause uh, a rupture of an aneurysm or a bleed in the brain mm-hmm. or uh, a heart attack I mean, or peripheral vascular problems. Uh, so it's, it's bad to have hypertension. That's why we do what we can to try and lower it. But as I said, the, the best ways to do it are without drugs. Well, what about then when people have some of these risk factors? Obviously, if they're smoking, you're going to encourage them to stop, or if they're obese, you're going to encourage them to to lose some weight. You go back to the lifestyle strategies again and try to teach them that. You don't just mention, oh, yeah, quit smoking and lose some weight and you know, don't stress and get more sleep. You've got to take an active role, maybe having them write an autobiography, you know, like we were talking about before. And tell us your whole life story. Why do you do the things that you do? What happened? And when you see that picture, that story, you may have a different way that you want to deal with things because, ah, I get it. It's like a light bulb went off. What I'm doing is going to be killing myself if I do this. And that, of course, you want to avoid. Well, it seems that this approach of looking at the risk factors beyond what the blood pressure is will really help those that are most likely to benefit. That's the whole point of this study. And that's why I think it's really important that we do what we can to individualize individualize each person. You have to keep in mind that the pharmaceutical industry is going to fight this because they want to treat everybody <laughs> with drugs. I mean, look at the story that they have with osteo, what they call osteopenia, which is a, an early uh, condition that may lead to osteoporosis. It's but like it, pre. It is, yeah, it's like pre-osteoporosis, but it's actually a normal bone density. It's not like you have an abnormal bone density. But if you're at the low end of of bone density levels, which is what osteopenia represents, then the pharmaceutical industry came up with the idea that maybe if we could treat those people in addition, that instead of having 10 million people in the U.S. that would be able to be on drugs like Fosamax, they'd have 44 million people who they could treat. And of course, that means what? Bottom line, they're making more money, and that's why they're in business. They don't care about you. And then I've talked to so many people that uh, are on blood pressure pills, and it makes them so tired. Oh, they're just so tired all the time. It does a lot of things to and you. And they hate it, and sometimes it makes them weak or it makes them feel kind of faint. Or when they get up in the morning, they 
they feel lightheaded. There are a lot of a lot of side effects from the medications. I mean, even the hydrochlorothiazide, which is supposed to be the first step in treatment, may lower your blood pressure, but it also dehydrates you, depletes you of magnesium and potassium. It makes your insulin resistance go up so you're prone to type 2 diabetes. It raises your cholesterol, raises your uric acid, so it puts you at risk for this developing diuret- gout. This is a diuretic? This is a diuretic. And you really want to do that for that expense? We should be looking at all the things that we can do to lower the risks, okay, or the things that lead to that. And most of the time, it's stress. That's why two-thirds of people over the age of 60 have hypertension, and one-third of the people have hypertension that are under 60. It's like there's an ep- it's an epidemic, and nobody's really looking at it in a way that, that's looking at the cause. They're just looking to, to treat everybody as though one size fits all. So these people that are saying that one size fits all doesn't make a lot of sense are right. So it makes us a little bit more conservative in deciding who to do what with. But the main thing is to try to do the right thing for each individual person, and that depends on who you are and what your life story is about. Well, here's a new study that's the first to find evidence that people with clinical depression show significant inflammation of the brain. And this finding has implications for treatment beyond antidepressants, since more than half the people with major depression don't even respond to drugs anyway. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, the ones with major depression, you're right, half of them don't respond. At least they respond in the other half. But in people who have mild to moderate depression, you'd have to wonder how much inflammation they have, and they don't respond to to uh, the SSRI antidepressants hardly ever. They're about the same. They. It's the placebo effect that's the same thing as what the drug effect, according to the big studies that were done, that included those studies that uh, had a negative effect that weren't published. So we've got an issue here that's fascinating. Well, you know, since it may be possible that inflammation causes depression as opposed to the depression causing the inflammation in this study, Mm -hmm. what will this information mean regarding treatment? Well, then you'd start talking about using things like Celebrex, okay? <laughs> which I don't think is very smart. Uh, it's, the whole idea is we have a drug-conscious uh, medical profession. Who did this study? Well, I don't know who did the study, but you can kind of bet that they, well, they think like the mainstream psychiatrists who are into what? Psychotherapy Drugs. is a thing of the past. And anti-inflammatory. Yeah, they're into psychopharmacology to manage things which is, to me, the most insane approach that you could imagine. It's not like it's never an approach to use. I think there are times that you can. Well, one of the things I was thinking about is how um, we've reported on other studies that show that exercise helps with depression, and maybe it's because it's reducing the inflammation, because we know exercise just reduces inflammation. You could make a case for that, but you could also make a case for that exercise uh, helps you with... uh, Uh, with your depression primarily, and that lowers your inflammation. So whatever, you know, whatever it is, but there are other things that people can do for their um, depression. Now, if there's inflammation, could supplements help with that? You know, I know there's supplements that are helpful. Yes, but we should be looking for the cause. You have a great point. Antioxidants would be something you could do, and anti-inflammatory agents would be something you could do. And that might even drive the depression to an extent. I think what it's really pointing out is the power of, of our mind, of our biochemistry and physiology to be influenced by what we think and feel. You know, you have a new machine. I, 
Yeah. Of course, you know. But anyway, I'm just saying that as an expression. But you have a machine at your office now that's relatively new to you mm-hmm. that's called a pulsed electromagnetic field generator. Right. And you have come home and told me how you've helped people's depression with this. And so, like, what is this? How can this help with depression? If you have people who are severely depressed, I have one patient, for example, who spends the day day in bed. And and that's what she does. She gets up to eat sometimes, and she goes back to bed. And the drugs that she she was taking didn't do much of anything. She's still doing the same thing. Now, we've been reading about the effects of pulsed electromagnetic fields in, in influencing the, the deep brain tissues that activate those areas of the brain that go silent in people who have depression. So if you do a PET scan on people like they did in the study and then try to assess different kinds of factors, uh, such as what I just mentioned, then you get an idea of what you can do in ways other than using drugs to measure the same thing. So when you do this pulse electromagnetic field generator, uh, it seems to have a powerful effect on lifting mood. And while that's not looking at the cause for things, there are times when you're not going to get any place with psychotherapy because these people are just flat out of it. There's some of these are the people that we're using electroshock therapy on. Well, this machine, I've noticed also you're helping people with pain and inflammation. It does a lot of things. So maybe that's one of the things that it does is it helps the inflammation in their brain that's associated with their depression. Well, that's a great little theory. I think that's a good point, and that's what this article is about. So you've pointed out something here that's really important. We need to do things to at least research as much as we can, and the fact that we're using this electromagnetic approach to treat people who have depression, and it's working, by the way. This person, after a few days of treatment, is out of bed, exercising, has a little better attitude, and seems to be improving. So, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a big thing to be able to do something that, that's that powerful to change the situation. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go back and do psychotherapy or try to find the reasons for why this person's depressed, which I think I know because I know the person pretty well, but it means changing a lot of things in her life, doing a lot of forgiving, getting the anger out that's been holding her in check, and try to support her in ways uh, that she can begin to have the strength to go on. But for now, this is great. I wonder if something like neurofeedback would be helpful. It might be. I mean, that's an approach to change the way the brain works, too. It's like resetting how the brain works. So, sure, these are all things that we want to make some cause of, but uh, we're, we're out of time. So we're at the end of the show, Vicki. Well, and if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Music.